there. Welcome to episode 131 of the Love That Album podcast. My name is Morris. Wonderful to have your company. Hope that you enjoy what we have planned for this episode. Now, I used to call this concept the mystery box because basically we'd pick albums that I didn't advertise in the blurb for the podcast. I don't really like that term, but I don't know. I'll think of something before I go and put the episode up. And joining me as he previously did, I think on episode 84 of Love That Album, which was a mystery box episode, is the host of the Martian Driving podcast, Paleo Cinema podcast, and YouTube channel Terry Talks Movies, and movie reviewer for Radio Darwin, Mr. Terry Frost. Welcome to Love That Album, Terry. Yeah, thanks a lot, Morris. Yeah, you make me sound like I'm doing a lot of stuff, so no wonder I'm tired. <laughs> well, actually, you are doing a lot of stuff. I mean, I'm getting tired just thinking about it. So, so am I. So, so respect. <laughs> well, you've got to last for the next, I don't know, 90 minutes or however long it takes us to Let's talk do that. about jazz. So what we did in episode 84, what we're essentially doing today is we're going to talk about some jazz albums that we dig on. We're going to go short form. Now, normally Love That Album is talking about one album. I mean, we go to peripheral albums as it suits the yeah. cause for the focus album. But this time around, we've deliberately picked three albums each. And we'll talk for, whatever, 10 minutes, a little more, yeah. a little less. Uh, we can do what we like. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. We want to shoot the shit about these albums, what we liked about it, what we didn't think worked, as much or as little as we want. And uh, look, I want to say right off the bat to the listening audience, I certainly am not a jazz expert. I've not been trained as a jazz musician, and I wouldn't even necessarily say that jazz is predominantly what I listen to in my collection, but I do listen to a lot of jazz. I love it. And this is just my opportunity to talk with a fellow jazz fan about some albums that we love and why we love it in the broadest of terms and probably the jazz musicians they never intended it to be an elitist thing that only other jazz musicians would love so if i happen to get a time signature wrong then really don't hold it against me yeah you're not paying for this podcast so just wear it yeah indeed <laughs> before we go any further at the time of recording this it's been a day or so since the jazz world lost the great Lyle Mays. Now, anyone who's hung around the Love That Album podcast Facebook page knows that I'm a huge fan of the Pat Metheny group. PMG have not existed as an entity for quite a few years. Pat Metheny's been continually busy with a million and one musical different projects. But nowadays, he tends to work more with a quartet. And as once again, from the time of recording this, he's actually going to be touring Australia in a month. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to be at the Melbourne show, but I've seen him twice before. And he's absolutely fantastic. And on the first time I saw him back in 84, 85, it was with the Pat Metheny group. No matter what incarnation of the band, and he did have a lot of musicians go in and out. They were always fantastic. But Lyle Mays was his equal in this group and I'm sure Pat has frequently acknowledged that despite it being called the Pat Metheny group but Lyle Mays brought a sense of classical style to the jazz world and I mean according to Metheny apparently Lyle Mays was also a really really good guitar player but in this group he was the keyboard whiz and he came up with some great sounds on the synths but he was also a beautiful piano player always really inventive and brought a great sense of style so he wasn't playing with blues as a bass like a lot of jazz pianists do and I'm not saying that either's a good thing or a bad thing I'm just saying that was his approach more of a classical sense of style to what Matheny was doing at least to my untrained ears also to my ears I have to say he was every bit the equal of Matheny in this group and I know 
that actually Pat and Lyle often co-wrote their compositions. And that was the other thing. I mean, like Pat Metheny often spoke about the beauty of improvisation. And it seemed to me like in his other projects, there was a large sense of what he was doing was improvised. And there certainly is that with scope to that within the Pat Metheny group. But a lot of what he and Lyle wrote were far more composed. I just sort of think that Lyle Mays was a great composer as well as a fantastic musician. And I know that Pat has put out a formal statement. He thinks that Lyle was truly one of the greatest musicians he's ever worked with. He stood on the shoulders of all the giants who came before him. Lyle, you'll be greatly missed. Thank goodness there's a ton of great PMG albums out there and some Lyle Mays solo albums as well. So They also did a soundtrack. For a they movie. did The Falcon and the Snowman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In 1985. So not every jazz musician can kind of stretch doing that. Well, it's interesting you mention yeah. that because we'll have something to say about that in a few minutes. But I'm also sort of thinking that there were composers who worked within the jazz idiom who were not necessarily primarily known as jazz musicians in their own right, but they composed like people like Lalo Schifrin and yeah. David Shire. And I'm trying to think who wrote the soundtrack for that wonderful film, Laura? David Raxon. David Raxon. One and, of my favourite composers. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and that's one of the great jazz scores, but I don't know that I've heard any music outside of the soundtrack realm and really one of my favorite soundtracks by a composer who was not normally known for doing jazz which was yeah. bernard herman on the taxi driver soundtrack i mean actually that's probably another show that we should do terry is just talk about jazz and its relationship to cinema uh, yeah we're probably going to hit a little bit of cassavetti's talking today but we can do a few things that john cassavetti's did as a director mm. uh there was you know paris blues with sydney poitier and i think Paul Newman. Yeah, there's a, there's a few out there. There's a film that Cassavetti's made called Too Late Blues. Have you seen that one? Yeah, I've got that on Blu-ray. It's got Stella Stevens and Bobby Darren. That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a really good jazz film. I, I'm thinking we need to bring that into see here at some stage. The topic of jazz and cinema, it's not common, but it has been done. And been some great composers who've worked within the jazz idiom. So we will be talking about that in a few minutes in a little bit more detail with one of my picks. Once again, R.I.P. Lyle Mays. And for those of you out there who are thinking, well, I've never really sort of given Pat Metheny a chance, then please go to anything from the PMG. Maybe give a try as a start to an album called As Falls With Cheetah, So Falls With Cheetah Falls, which is basically just the two of them. I mean, I think there's a little bit of vocalese from the singer and percussionist called None of Esconcellus, but basically it's a two-handed effort with Pat and Lyle playing all the instruments, and that's a really, really great album. So that's possibly a good place to start, but you can't go wrong with anything that the two of them collaborated on really beautifully melodic so yeah the jazz world has lost a great credit had to be given at the start of yeah. this jazz episode so what we'll do now is joanne will give the contact details i've actually even had a couple of emails over the last month who'd have thought that's really i cool. remember emails yeah yeah well <laughs> th- 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 once in a while you get them i mean I'll, i like it when people post stuff in the facebook group but there's something special about an email i mean there's something even more special about a written letter i'm, I'm not going to ask the listeners for that but yeah, if you want to send me an email joanne's got the details for you and how to join the facebook group coming up and then Terry and I will be back to talk about three jazz albums each that we really love all right so we'll be back in a couple of minutes you're listening to love that album episode 131 
I got a stack of records here, a stack of records there. I got records scattered all over everywhere, but I'm... We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes of Love That Album at lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music-related discussion. And you're back from break. Morris speaking here, Terry speaking over there. And we're going to be talking about three jazz albums each, so six in total if arithmetic is not your strong point. Terry, I'll get you to get the ball rolling with your first pick for the show. Yeah, it's a 1959 album on Blue Note, which means it's good. And it's R. Blakey and the Jazz Messengers moaning. is one of the classic pop albums in a sense it's not a big band it's very small you got Art Blakey on drums Lee Morgan doing the trumpet Benny Golson tenor sax Bobby Timmons on piano and Jamie Merritt on bass and this is a album I only found recently the algorithm suggested it to me on one of my streaming services mm-hmm. and I kind of went into it I hadn't done much Blakey before and I liked it I think it's got a really weird duality about it it's an album you can listen to in the background mm-hmm. while you're doing other things like when I'm writing a script for a YouTube video or something. I can play moaning in the background and it fills that area really nicely. You sit down with the cans on and you just lean back and lean into the album and it just works for me. I mean, Monin, I first heard the track Monin, not as the version with Art Blakey, but there is a John Hendricks version with lyrics, and that's where I first heard Leonard Hendricks and Ross did it way back in the day. Every evening find me moaning Yes, Lord I'm alone and crying the blues Yes, Lord I'm so tired of paying these dues Yes, Lord Everybody knows I'm moaning Yes, Lord Lord, I spent plenty of days and nights alone with my grief. And I like that one. I was really binging Lambert Hendrix and Ross albums at one stage, and Mernon was a part of that. But going back to the original, which was written by the penis Bobby Timmons, I kind of like it, and it's got that classic jazz thing where the piano starts and then passes it on to the sax, and the drums come in, and then the bass, and then the trumpet. It's kind of handing it around like a joint. That opening motif, it's all like a a Mm. call and response sort of thing, which probably relates to maybe his gospel roots or something like that. It's something I've seen jazz musicians do a lot. I used to go to a place called Soup Plus in Sydney. Yes, I've heard of that. I've never heard of that. It's fantastic because it was cheap. You could go there, you get a bowl of soup, and maybe some cheese and crackers and you sit down and listen to the best jazz musos in Sydney and it'll cost you like at that stage maybe 10 bucks for a meal and you can stay there all night nibbling crackers and listening to jazz and that's where I first saw people handing the melody between the instruments Mm -hmm. and seeing it live is a totally different and immersive experience compared to listening to it or even seeing it on video just watching the guys kind of give each other the eye when they're about to pass it over is really wonderful to watch it's artistry at a 
that's a very high level and I always like that and appreciate it when I hear it on an album knowing that the guys are looking at each other and their body language is leaning into each other and then they pass that line along it's just a beautiful thing I think that's probably a necessary thing because when you sort of read that a lot of jazz musicians unlike say rock music or other forms of popular music or classical music for that matter the musicians don't necessarily get to rehearse they maybe come in on the day might have a quick look at the charts and then they're going straight into it so their way of saying right I'm passing this on to you now is through a look of the eyes rather than through knowledge of what's on the page and there's also the thing too where there's feedback happening as well when you see it and if somebody does a really nice piece of improvisation the other band members will let them know non-verbally that they've caught lightning in a bottle with that little phrase and this one you get that feel as well that as they pick up the melody from each other Monin is the track where they really do that best they really are appreciating what the other person's given them to play with after they've done it you mentioned before that you'd heard the uh, Lambert Hendricks and Ross version of this from the early 60s and John Hendricks actually returned to it about 11-12 years later on an Art Blake in the Messengers album it was called Buhane and it was just basically just John Hendricks doing the vocals and actually if you've seen the front cover of this album Blakey's looking very very stylish I can't remember wearing a turtleneck sweater or something like that very 1970s away from the suits I'm a big fan of the turtleneck sweater I think you should come back mate I can't even begin to think of that, though. It's the wrong time of year for it. I don't know. I presume that Blakey must have been a fan of the Lambert Hendrix and Ross version and called him and said, hey, let's get together and do this. I want to revive this tune. And I'm pretty sure it's been covered by lots and lots of people over the years. Oh, it's become a standard in certain, you know, in the small jazz groups, I think. There's only one track in here. I've got to listen to it a few more times before I think I'll like it very much. Mm-hmm. And that's the Drum Thunder Suite. the drum thunder suite it has a lot of that sort of tom tom hi-hat work that i first heard there was a cover version that the great guitarist danny gatton had done of the great duke ellington tune cherokee it really does bring that thunder and it's just something i find very very exciting about it i'm a big fan of that tune but i can appreciate it's not necessarily everyone's cup of tea i think i'm going to dive into it though and give it another couple of chances the way i often do with these things the nice thing too is they chuck in a jazz standard as well. Come ready, come shine. Harold Arlen, Johnny Mercer. some really interesting things with that it, uh, at times you're listening to it and you're listening so intently to what they're doing with the tune you forget well at least I do I forgot it was Come Rain and Come Shine until they brought it back to this kind of traditional rendition of it just for a little bit mm. I was just so immersed in the improvisations and the changes they wrought on it that I forgot the lyrics, I forgot what tune it was, but I was just kind of diving deeply into the way they were passing it between each other and the way everybody was adding to it and kind of making it more than the sum of the parts. That's a tune that's very, very near 
near and dear to my heart. I first heard it, I guess, in the early 80s when it was played over the opening credits of the Scorsese film The King of Comedy, the Ray Charles version. So that's a song that I've loved for, well, whatever it is, 36, 37 years. And so to hear this version, which is not necessarily up-tempo, but certainly a mid-tempo version, a lot more yeah. of a swinging sort of version. When I heard this, it sort of took me off guard. i got to say, just from the outset as well, though, even though I've been a long-time Blakey fan, I had like a great three-CD anthology on Blue Note of Blakey's work on Blue Note. So I didn't actually have this album until you went and said to me, hey, I'd like to talk about this on the show. So it was interesting yeah. to sort of like hear all those tunes played as a unit, as it was intended to be heard. Yeah, look, I really dug that tune as well. And it was interesting to sort of have to have a different mindset approach listening to it after sort of knowing it for so many years as this fantastic Ray Charles ballad. And I'm sure it's been done hundreds of times by other musicians in equally interesting ways. Yeah, and the nice thing too about getting the, the album now is there's that alternate take on Monin as well. Right. They've added an extra track to it. So just seeing the way they did it differently the second time was kind of interesting. <laughs> another one that I think I'm going to have to lean into a little more. I think I understand it. It's like some movies. You, know, you see them the first time and you don't really appreciate it and then you see it again knowing a little bit more about something mm-hmm. and, and it kind of grows on you and I think that there are a couple of tracks in this album that are like that for me. Uh, like I said I, I listened to it in the background while I was writing my next script for the YouTube channel as well as uh, listening to it again just with the cans on and sitting back in the office chair and, and doing that and it plays well either way. I'm, I can't figure out why. It's a sort of album you can here in a cafe and you're having a conversation you're drinking your coffee it builds an atmosphere in the cafe mm-hmm. the other album I know that does that probably as well is Serge Gainsbourg's Kalu Cafe album both of those if you walk into a cafe and Monin's playing or Are You Real or Along Came Betty or even Blues March you know you're going to get a good cup of coffee and I've had a couple of jazz conversations recently in cafes with baristas because they've picked an album I like not necessarily moment, but they picked an album I like. You can talk to them for a little bit about the people there, and they're trying to educate the other baristas in jazz, but the other baristas are into something else. It's an interesting rabbit hole to dive down if you're willing to. And I got a free coffee out of it, so I'm not unhappy. I think I might have to start a jazz conversation at the next coffee shop I go. When when you find a coffee shop where they're playing decent jazz, talk to the barista, the one with the most tattoos. That's the way to do it. But yeah, I mean, Monin for me is an album, like I said, I only found it recently, and I want to listen to it a lot more than I have already. That's always the hallmark of a great album. You might not necessarily like every cut in it the first time, but if you think, I want this to be a continuous part of my life, then it's done its job. Yeah. I mean, I just want to say right off the bat here that Monin seems to me like, as in the tune itself, seems to me like it's very well known. It's certainly by name in amongst jazz fans, even amongst the most casual jazz fans. But you get iconic tunes like Take Five from Dave Brubeck or Cantaloupe Island from Herbie Hancock. And everyone knows those tunes, and, and deservedly so. They're great, but I think that Monin should be part of that pantheon. I agree with you totally. They found a new ver- early version of Take Five recently, too, before they got the time signature right, before the Brubeck group settled into it, and it sounds chaotic as hell, and, and that's a train wreck until they got it right. <laughs> wow, I'm going to have to search that one out.
that's your first pick for the show. Yep. Okay, we'll go towards my first pick, and I think this is probably a good album to pair that with. This is an album from 1965 from the Horace Silver Quintet. The name of the album is called Songs for My Father. What I just said about Monin being a tune that really needs to be more in the pantheon, I sort of feel like Song From My Father, also a Blue Note album, is an album that really needs to be more in the wider circle of not necessarily jazz specialist discussion because once again looking at the facebook music discussion groups people are always bringing up kind of blue by miles davis or headhunters by herbie hancock both great albums i'm not taking anything away from those but song for my father every track is a gem and i think because horace was working as much with latin rhythms without it necessarily being a latin jazz album but he was finding ways to incorporate latin within bebop styles at least to my ears that it seemed like he was doing something i don't know for the time it was necessarily different but he was certainly doing things in his way and i'd really like to see this album be a little bit more in the conversation the reason why i thought this is a great album to pair with monin is as it started i think in 1959 that horace silver was originally a founding member of the jazz messengers in fact i think the first couple of albums of the jazz messengers are attributed to horace silver and the jazz messengers rather than art blakey and the jazz messengers he'd previously worked as a sideman to miles davis and stan getz but from what I understand, The Messengers was the first band as leader. And he still did a few more Sidemen gigs before forming his first lineup of the Horace Silver Quintet. But once that came out, I think in 59, it was basically Horace Silver all the way. And I've heard some of those early albums and really, really dig them. With albums names like Finger Poppin' and Blowing the Blues Away, <laughs> let, me, let me assure you, it's truth in advertising. They're yeah. great, great records. Album, the thing I like about it most is that he is kind of exploring his ethnic origins. I mean, Song for mm. My Father, it's got a picture of his father wearing a straw hat with a cigar butt sticking in his mouth sitting in a park. And his father uh, was born in the Cape Verde Islands, Portuguese origin. And, you know, that kind of exploring your roots and exploring where you come from and your ethnicity, in a sense, in a jazz context, in a hard bop context, mm. something that really is interesting, something that I think more musicians should do, or some of them do, of course. But I think kind of diving back into your ancestry and listening to the rhythms and the instruments and the orchestrations of of your cultural heritage and then creating something new based on it and based on your own experience, I think is something that we should be seeing more of in music. I think that Horace was someone who was interested in general, not just in his own heritage, but I think in other cultures as well to seem to be able to incorporate into jazz. I mean, look, there's an album, I think it's called Tokyo Blues. I know that he went to Japan and I'm guessing that he went and incorporated what his ears were in tune to. Well, 
based on my own experience too, you can't go to Japan and not get changed by going to Japan. It's a, one of those places in the world that alters your worldview, always for the better, I think. So I just want to make a little bit of a sidetrack. I spoke at the beginning of the show about Lyle Mason and Pat Metheny, and it was through Pat Metheny that I actually first discovered the name of Horace Silver. So there was an album that came out I can't remember the year, maybe 82, 83. I think it might have been one of the very first Pat Metheny albums that didn't involve the Pat Metheny group. He had the great Billy Higgins on drums and Charlie Hayden on double bass. And they put together this album called Rejoicing, which was a long way from the heavily orchestrated sounds of the PMG. Just the three of them doing some free jazz stuff, doing some bebop stuff. But the album opens up with a tune called Lonely Woman. first time I heard it I must have played like half a dozen times in a row it was just simply the most gorgeous thing I think I'd ever heard to that point at least in terms of jazz music Matheny's acoustic guitar it was like he was caressing the strings so beautiful and Charlie Hayden's double bass he was really playing down the low end on this and Billy Higgins was using the brushes like he was caressing that snare drum just everything about that version was so perfect so I thought well who is this Horace Silver guy who's composed it the pre-internet days you had to sort of like go look in books or you had to go into record shops and ask have you heard this tune who's this Horace Silver guy and then it might have been Discurio or somewhere like that that they said this is the album and I went and bought it I just wanted to hear what else this Horace Silver guy had to do Maybe only by a fraction. I still think I prefer the Matheny version over the Horace Silver version. Right. It's just, maybe it's because I heard it first. But if the Pat Matheny version is perfect, then this is nearly perfect. But it's just yeah, beautiful. I, I think it's not so much about his playing, but just I think that the guitar maybe worked as a better instrument for this melody than the piano does. But it's still absolutely gorgeous. I'm splitting hairs here. So, <laughs> but I fell in love with that song from my father album. And the story is that, and for someone, once again, this is where my non education in I'm not a jazz musician so uh, apparently Horace Silver he disbanded his previous quintet for the song for my father album because he said it's just not working it's time to move on with different musicians and I mean I listened to those early albums and they sound absolutely brilliant to my ears and I can't imagine what could they have done different and there's a couple of tunes on this album from previous sessions featuring musicians from his previous lineup of the band which they just sort of threw in here but mostly this is with a new lineup of the Horace Silver Quintet featuring the great Joe Henderson on sax Carmel Jones on trumpet Teddy Smith on bass and Roger Humphreys on drums. My ears are forever tuned to what the drummers are going to be doing. And Roger Humphreys, he can pull it back and be really extremely gentle and caress with his brushes on the snare like he does on this version of Lonely Woman. But there's other tunes on this album, like The Natives Are Restless.
where yeah. he just plays up a storm. It's just absolutely fantastic. And there's, there's another tune on it called The Kicker that is really, really high energy. And that's a beautiful thing about this album. And I guess about a lot of Blue Note albums is the sense of dynamic. You do have mm. the tunes which are, you know, you get your ballads and you do get your really high energy things and they do it all over one or two sessions, one or two days. All the musicians in a room, they're all looking at each other. It's essentially a gig, but without an audience, except the rest of the band is your audience and they're just feeding off each other. And I'm sure that's what's happening with this tune. As for the tune, Song for My Father, there's actually been a lyric written for this. We were speaking before about Monin, where John Hendricks had written a yeah. lyric for this. But there was a lyric written for Song for My Father that the great jazz singer Dee Dee Bridgewater did. This little song for my father does things that no other can do. got like I think a hundred cover versions that documented I mean the artists who I knew besides Dee Dee Bridgewater there was James Brown who I must say was a very ordinary version with his group it, I, they weren't even trying credit to him for doing that yeah. great tune but not very inspirational I must say uh, George Benson did a good version and the great Larry Coriel who I really really love any versions that you think you might have heard well I'm, I'm not sure I've heard versions of that. I'm just trying to think of the most extreme version of somebody writing lyrics to a jazz tune that mm. I know of and I know that there's a Al Jarreau vocal version of Blue Rondo while a Turk by um, Brubeck oh, wow <laughs> Which is kind of extreme. Does it work? Um, it kind of does, but I think it's one of those things where it's not so much how well the bear rides a bicycle, it's the fact that it rides a bicycle at all. Um, mm-hmm. There are some really extreme ones. There's a vocal version of the Peter Gunn theme from a Marie Montgomery album done here in Australia in the 70s or 80s, which is very cool as well. I like the idea of taking something that's so deeply and innately non-lyrical and adding lyrics to it that stay in the context of the tune. And I, I think there's an art to that. I can think of a few of them, but it's a rabbit hole you go down and you never come out again. One other thing I just sort of thought about for a song for my father, and I have no idea whether Horace Silver attempted to sue them or was just flattered that they'd do this, but Steely Dan, who I confess I'm not really a huge fan of, but their famous song, Ricky Don't Lose That Number, has yeah. that ostinato feel, that sort of bum in their tune which I mean okay if you're going to steal at least they chose a great artist and a great song to steal from but generally yeah not a huge Steely Dan fan you know where they got the name from Uh, no please tell me in I think it's one of um, William Burroughs novels could be the soft machine or one of those it's the name of a dildo okay in in a William Burroughs novel so I think next time when I have you on the show we'll talk about the band 10cc and you can tell me where that (laughs) came from Uh, I'll tell you now if you like I think the audience are aware (laughs) one other thing i should just sort of point out to the listeners out there if uh, you can go into youtube and look up song for my father there's a live version i think from the late 60s maybe 68 69 with whatever lineup that Horace Silver is working with at the time and he's got the great Billy Cobham playing drums and it's like a 17 minute version and you sort of get to the middle of it and it starts out as the bossa nova feel that we all know and then in the middle it just picks up and it goes into this really hard bop feel before coming back to the bossa nova feel for the remaining eight minutes and Billy Cobham I don't necessarily associate him with this style of drumming I tend to think Cobham I tend to think of Mahavishnu 
new orchestra and jazz fusion of the 70s but he does a really great job on this and a really fantastic album overall once again yeah, as i said there's some great up-tempo tunes and i've already gone and talked about or referred to lonely woman but yeah there's a couple of really up-tempo tunes which are very very exciting the kicker natives are restless i mean that's what you sort of get as i said before in blue note albums you get your dynamic you get your up tempo you get your more ballady type tunes often based in blues and gospel type scales and feels i think if you like blue note in general and really why wouldn't you then this is an album that has to be in your collection i think it's iconic and as i was saying before about moaning i think it's every bit as great as Time Out by Brubeck, yeah. an album of that period. Blue Note is a fascinating label to dive into because every Blue Note album I hear, and I haven't heard them all. You'd be around for a long, long time. If you well, I hope to be. Thousands. <laughs> well, okay, there you go. You get started. There are thousands of them. And I'm, yeah, I'm just but, so but, happy but that But the classic jazz albums that we know from Blue Note, mm. every one of them I, I hear, you can tell that they're extending the art form with each album. There's, there's no kind of filler there. It's all quality stuff. And the Blue Note album that I listen to and the ones that have been re-released recently you know within the last 10 or 15 20 years you can really see them moving an art form along as you progress chronologically through them and that's a nice journey to take one thing that i like about blue note is i'm not sure which major label took them on it might have been emi sometime in the mid 80s or something like that and basically re- revived blue note which i don't think had been a going concern for a few years and they got a new generation of musicians who were not necessarily playing in the classic Blue Note styles that we knew and loved from yeah. artists like you know, Wayne Shorter or Dexter Gordon or Herbie Hancock or Horace Silver. But they were doing their own thing. And I even found it exciting. There's this great trio, Modesky, Martin and Wood, who were sort of mixing jazz and hip hop. And you know, I'm not necessarily the world's greatest hip hop. They sound like a, a company of lawyers. If they could approach the law the same way that they approach jazz, I'd feel safe in their hands. Oh, um, fair enough. These guys are great. I just like the fact that Blue Note were prepared to go to different places. And there's a couple of documentaries out there that have been released in the last few years about Blue Note. I saw one of them about a year ago at the Jewish International Film Festival, which was okay. Not great, but there's a second one. I don't remember it by name, but I believe that it's considerably better. So I've got to search that out. I mean, I don't think you can really do a label with such a broad history justice in a one and a half hour documentary. But a documentary very... series might work. You know, one per album. Absolutely. One episode per album might work, yeah. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, pick 10 albums that are iconic and give a little yeah. bit of history of what else is going on at the time. Look, I still want to see this other film just to see where they go with it. Well, look, anyway, I think we've done our Blue Notes segment for the show. So what yeah. we'll do now is we'll go to a break and then we'll come back with another album each to talk about. Sure. Okay, you're listening to Love That Album, episode 131. When you're watching movies, are you sick of remakes, reboots, reimaginings, reinventions and Reese Witherspoon 
Are you fed up with movies where giant robots try to remake Enter the Dragon? Do you think that torture porn is vastly inferior to 1970s drive-in porn? Do you find Botox actresses with fake tits and action heroes with no chest hair a turn-off? Do movies where no single shot lasts more than two and a half seconds piss you off? Yeah, me too. That's why I do Paleo Cinema Podcast, a podcast for films more than 20 years old. So if you think the Cicerese is a guy and that Myrna Loy is a kind of metal, you need Paleo Cinema Podcast. Go to paleo-cinema.com and do yourself a favour. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 131, part of the Pantheon network of music podcasts. My huge thanks to the wonderful folk at Pantheon Podcasts. I'll talk a little bit more about them at the end of the show and recommend a couple of great shows I've been listening to recently that you all ought to get onto. It's wonderful to be in esteemed company with all these other music podcasts. Anyway, so what's happening for this episode, though, if you've only just gone and moved the dial like 30 minutes into the show, is Terry and I are talking about jazz albums we dig. Not necessarily our favourites, just three albums that we wanted to talk about on the show for a few minutes each. So, Terry, your turn. Mingus R. Um, Charles Mingus... Like the previous album I mentioned, Monin, this is classic Mingus. You and I were discussing earlier that as a human being, he wasn't a very nice person. Mm. But as a jazz musician, he was at a level that astounds me. Every time I hear a new Mingus album, I know it's going to challenge me. And it's going to take me to a, a part of jazz that I haven't really been to before. And, and this one's got some classic tracks on it, too. I mean, it's got Goodbye Pork by Hat, which was his homage to Lester Young, who just died before the album was recorded. That's a classic of jazz. I mean, there's no two ways about it. You talk to anybody that knows jazz and just mention Goodbye Pork Pie Hat. I think it's one of those uh, tunes that even the rock fraternity has recorded versions yeah. of. I mean, I, I know that a, a couple of blues guitarists who I really, really love, Bert Yanch and John Renborn, yeah. uh, did their take on it so yeah, it's, it's been covered by people in all sorts of styles i think yeah absolutely i mean the first track is probably the one i, I like least on this album oh really which is better get it in your soul I think it outstays its welcome just that little bit. Again, I'm, I'm willing to re-listen to it and, and re-evaluate it if you disagree with me. <laughs> but for me, it's the one that didn't grab me particularly. i got to say that I find that tune such a brilliant way to start the album. To me, it's a statement of purpose. Yeah. It's, it's exciting. I don't even think you necessarily have to be a, a huge jazz aficionado. I probably have to have some liking of jazz to appreciate yeah. it, but it sounds like it's been influenced by gospel 
And I think that Mingus must have loved what he did there because if you go to some of his other albums, like the Blues and Roots album, which may have come out actually before this or was certainly recorded before this on Atlantic, there's a tune called Wednesday Night Prayer Meeting, which mm. evokes the same spirit of better get it in your soul. I'm pretty sure there's at least two or three albums where he does. I mean, the one that came after this, Mingus Dynasty, the opening cut on that sort of mm. evokes this start off quietly and then boom, the whole band comes in and Danny Richmond's swinging and then there's something of the hand clap in the middle and Mingus yelling all over it really evoking a great gospel feel as much as anything but I just find that better get it in your soul the other thing that I like about it is and I've used this word a lot on the show is dynamic it sounds like a tune that's building towards something and it pulls back and then it builds up again and it's just to me hugely hugely exciting no I really really love it well we can disagree then that's fine sure yeah. sure after Goodbye Pork Pie Hat the one that really grabbed me when I learned more about it I like the tune but I like the political origins of the tune as well it is Fabos for Forbus It was actually uh, the only jazz tune I know that is about a conservative politician, a guy called Orville Phobos, who was um, an American politician. He was the 36th governor of Arkansas, and he was an anti-integrationist who did a lot of stuff there. And there are actually lyrics, which aren't on this album, to Fable for Phobos, which go into the political context of it. It appears on a later Minkus album. Which I haven't heard yet, and I'm definitely going to deep dive into. Love the cover on this one. It it's great. by S. Neil Fujito, who also did one of the Rubeck albums. I think it was the one Take Fives on. Uh, it's a kind of abstract 1960, 1950s style painting. And it's just one of those things where as soon as you look at the album covers on the, on any of those albums, you know that it's going to be kind of 50s jazz. It, it just screams 50s jazz, the album cover. And I really like that. I think that somebody should put out an album now with that kind of cover, just to mess with people's heads. <laughs> but Fable for Four was, I like the fact that there's a political context to this album as well. There's Open Letter to Duke, which of course is Duke Ellington. Because yep. you mentioned about Duke Ellington, this is something that I was going to bring up, but it relates to Duke Ellington. So I can't remember if I read this in the liner notes for the album or I read it somewhere else, but Charles Mingus had said that, like a lot of jazz artists, that yeah. he believes that jazz is about improvisation and creation on the spot. And of course, that's the case. And yet, certainly for the time, his music, like Duke Ellington, who and you listen to this music and you know that there's the level of dissonance in the chord progressions or the chords yeah. themselves, that he's very much a devotee of Duke Ellington. Yeah. But his music, to me, has always sounded very composed. And once again, that's not criticism. I love it. Yeah, it's structured, it's yeah. So there is room for improvisation at certain points in his tunes. But the fact that he sort of said, I don't like the fact that there's so much out there that's overly structured and overly composed 
compose, I believe improvisation is key. And yet, once again, you go over any of his albums. There's a, another great one from a few years later that I really love called The Saint and the Sinner Lady. Yeah. Uh, and very, very composed. And all these albums have an element of structure, something that's been written down. Even if you sort of think, well, how do you know? But yeah. when you're listening to moments where, like, say, whoever's playing piano will be sort of going about in an improvised fashion you hear the horn section play these little call and response things over it in harmony that just sounds to me way too composed for it to be freely improvised but maybe one's looking at the other one and say alright I'll do this rhythm just follow me then they're geniuses and of course Charles Mingus would only be working with mm. the greatest musicians and I believe he was something yeah. of a hard ass on the musicians who worked for him but then again he also did give them freedom to put their spin on things sure. Well, what I understand of it is, yeah, improvisation is great, but I've heard some jazz albums, some really famous ones, some not so famous, where the improvisation runs away with itself and it strays too far from the melody and from the original track and becomes kind of not both lost and self-indulgent. And I think having that strong structure works and the improvisations, they're like the ivy on the building. They're not the structure of the building, but they make it more than it was. And I think that was the kind of improvisation Mingus did. And uh, I remember a couple of times I went to jazz clubs and the improvisations just went so self-indulgently long. People were getting up and kind of you know, shuffling around and going to the toilet and doing all those kind of things. Because of that, I think it's something that you can overdo. And I think one of the things about Mingus's strong structure is that it kind of proofs the work against that. My point there was less about structure versus improvisation, but just the fact that he would come out so strongly, at least how I read it, so yeah. strongly against overly composed music within the jazz realm, which sort of brings me to another point because I think that he had cited that, I think it was Stravinsky, who mm. he was a huge fan of, and he loved classical music. You would have thought he would have had a healthy respect for bringing something of that yeah. into the jazz world. And really, you listen to this music, once again, it, it evokes for me something of the composed style of Duke Ellington and maybe the great 20th century classical composers. I don't know, maybe he was just stirring the pot. Who knows? But um, Well, yeah, sometimes you say things because you know it's going to get a headline. <laughs> but the album, apart from that, is good. I like Jelly Roll, which, mm. of course, is a reference to Jelly Roll Morton. Mm-hmm. And there's a track on one of the bonus tracks that came out in the later issues, which I think is going to be one of my favourites, which is Gigi Train, which is actually one of the elevated trains that was going cross town in New York at the time. And that track's a little bit of a hidden gem on the album. It rolls beautifully. It kind of evokes New York City in the 1950s in a really interesting way for me. I want to listen to that one three or four more times uh, just to kind of cement it in my head. And I think it's you know, the most valuable player in the album of the what tracks that aren't things like Goodbye Pork Pie Hat. Mm. Yeah, of, of the lesser tracks, I think it's definitely the, the one that I find most interesting and most evocative. Mm. I'd probably say that, aside from the two most iconic tracks for me on the album, with you know, Better Get It In Your Soul and yeah. Goodbye Pork Pie Hat, the other track to, that is probably right up there as a most valuable player yeah. on this album for me would be Boogie Stop Shuffle. <laughs> Thank you. 
It sounds to me like the sort of music that Lalo Schifrin might have composed later on. It sounds like it belongs in a heist movie. Yeah, it might have soundtrack like Bullet or something like that. Mm. Yeah, very much. What was the film? Uh, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I can't remember which one. That's okay. But the, the film with James Stewart, he plays as a lawyer who... Anatomy like, of a Murder? Yes, that's it. Yeah. Anatomy of a Murder, which Duke yeah. Ellington... Oh, well, there you go. It was Duke Ellington. I was going to say, who composed the music for that? But now I just remember it's Duke Ellington. It's Duke Ellington. So, yeah. so once again, Boogie Stock Shuffle sort of, for me, evokes the music of a film. It's almost like that. It's almost like kind of jazz film noir. Yes, very in a sense. Yeah, it's, it's got that going for it. I think this album is one of the... I'm going to listen to it a lot more. It's going to be going on rotation on my playlist. Fantastic. Because I think that the more I hear it, the more I learn from it and the more I hear in it in that sense, which of course means it's a good jazz album. And I still can't get past that cover. I mean, I want that on my wall. Beautiful <laughs> abstract art cover on that. If I had a cafe, it'd be the walls would be mural with that kind of shit. There was one other note which I had over here yeah. about Mingus Art. Um, the year that it came out, here are four other benchmark albums that came out that year. So we already talked about... The 59, yeah. Of, yeah, 1959, Miles Davis's Kind of Blue, which oh. set the standard for modal jazz. Ornette Coleman with The Shape of Jazz to Come. And I have to say, I'm not an Ornette Coleman fan. Neither am I. I find him too challenging. I'm going to go back to him at some stage. Yeah. But somebody sat me down and played me, I think it was that album. Right. And it's... I wasn't ready for it at that stage of, of my appreciation of jazz. And that kind of dissonance and that atonality at times and all that kind of thing really did my head in. Look, I have no problem with atonality, but I think he's one of those artists where other people came along and took his approach but did things I liked a whole lot better, but they may not have gone there without him being there first. And I'd probably put John Coltrane, his yeah. later work, in that bag. But certainly, Ornette Coleman never did anything for me, but it's been widely acknowledged that that is a very, very important album. So 1959, the year that Mingus Arm comes out, we got Kind of Blue, Shape of Jazz to Come, John Coltrane putting out Giant Steps, yeah. and an album that you spoke about last time you were on the show, which was Dave Brubeck Quartet's Take Time Out. Yeah. Yeah, it was a good year. It was, it was a great year. It was but, like 1970 five was to American cinema <laughs> it was a really great year right seismic shift so we'll go now to an album from 1967 that I only recently discovered the name of the album is called Heavy Sounds and it's by, well, there's a quartet, but the band leaders are Elvin Jones, longtime drummer for John Coltrane, and a fellow called Richard Davis. want to sort of like just go back a little bit and sort how I came to Richard Davis. About a year or two back, I bought a really excellent album. It was a compilation on the soul jazz label called Blackfire New Spirits Radical and Revolutionary Jazz in the USA 1967 to 1982. That's way too long a title. Yeah, well that's why I decided not to talk about it on the show. 
it featured a wide range of african-american musicians, some which i knew and some that i didn't, but it was basically the common theme to the album was how the civil rights era was inspiring a lot of these jazz musicians in different ways. and there's a hell of a lot of diverse territory that's covered here and it's all linked to the very politically charged times from yeah. where the album starts. 67 got... was the peak of that. Right. Summer of Love uh, was just before the Democratic Convention in Chicago in 68. Mm. You've got guys on here like Gil Scott Heron. I mean, mm. that tells you as much as you need to know about what you're going to expect from this album. And you also have some great cuts from uh, the likes of Yusuf Latif, Don Cherry and Joe Henderson, who we spoke yeah. about before on the uh, Horace album just as an aside soul jazz is a great label if you haven't bought any of their compilations look them up they not only take a lot of care with how they curate the music that goes on the albums but the booklets that come with them putting historical context into what is on the album is so well looked after so yeah i wholeheartedly mm -hmm. recommend that but anyway one of the tunes on the album was from this fellow richard davis the tune was called dealin <laughs> is exceptionally funky. It totally embodies the spirit of what that comp was going for. I thought, okay, well, this is the first time I've heard of this Rich Davis fellow, yeah. but in fact, it wasn't. He had been playing double bass on an album that I have played probably hundreds of times. The album is Van Morrison's Astral Weeks. Oh, okay. And it's Richard Davis, whose very muscular double bass sound permeates all through that album and in fact I mean, he was the musical director for that album there are moments where he plays support but there's also moments where he pushes the bass forward and really to do that on Van Morrison album and as we know Van yeah. was not backward in coming forward with his yeah. ideas but he, he obviously entrusted you know, his music to Richard Davis and I think from what I read was that Van came in sang in the booth and when Richard Davis went up to him and said well you know, what do you want us to do what's the approach you want us to take for this song and Van was like do whatever you want well if you know somebody's really good you can give them that freedom to have their head and they're going to bring something valuable to it exactly there's so, two tracks on this album i really like too by oh, yeah. the way but continue yeah yeah well uh, just sort of coming back to the other sessions that what else has richard davis done with his life so he's worked with a bunch of people in the rock world and in the jazz world but also in the classical world so i don't know that there are many people who can say that they've worked for both sarah vaughan and stan getz <laughs> as well as being conducted by igor stravinsky and leonard bernstein this is a guy with a wide range of credits to his name and somewhere along the way he managed to find the academia to go and become a professor of music i think he's still As you with do, us. yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. so th this is a guy who has some serious performance chops but also is a serious believer in education is probably responsible he's still around he's, he's 89 around. correct he's 89, yeah and he, he's probably educated god knows how many generations of bass players there's players. no use knowing something unless you teach it the album that we're here to talk about though heavy sounds you know, elvin jones people if you're a fan of john coltrane then you know elvin jones style and i found that this was an interesting album because he'd come off having done a bunch of train albums including a love supreme and ascension i love them a lot of other people love them but they were exploring very new territory heavy
heavy sounds is an album to me that just sounds like a quartet having a lot of fun there's still some stuff on here that is not necessarily run-of-the-mill bebop yeah uh, they are doing some different things on here and the quartet's also made up of saxophonist frank foster who'd previously been in the count basie orchestra good composer too yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely and uh, a, a pianist called billy green who i don't think actually did more than maybe another two or three albums after this i have no idea what he did after this but the two of them compose the tunes on this album i think except for one that is elvin jones name Name, and we'll come to that in a moment but i'd love to know how elvin jones actually sort of viewed this album later on was this done just for him to have fun i imagine that doing what he did with john coltrane and he continued to work with him was yeah. very very intense and this is just a quartet having a bit of fun that's not to say it's a flippant or frivolous album it's far from it but it sounds a lot more like what's come before coltrane than moving on although mind you i guess with a bluesy funky style maybe it was keeping in more with that side of what was happening with the civil rights movement as opposed to the futuristic or spiritual side that maybe Sun Ra was going to and maybe John Coltrane was going to so I don't know but either way it just it really does sound like a fun album now you're going to say about something a cut on the album that you really really liked well there's two there's shiny stockings of course which I love John Hendricks again. John Hendricks' vocal version of Shiny Stockings. Oh, I did not know that. Is, you have got to check that out. I think it may be on YouTube somewhere. Mm-hmm. But Hendricks did it, um, and also Burton Cummings did a cover of it, of it as well. The lyrics on that are wild, so, but Shiny Stockings I like. But the interesting one for me, because it's got a relationship to movies, is Here's a Rainy Day. Johnny Burke and Jimmy Van Heusen. Now, you've got to go back to 1935, and there was a French film called Comesse Herotique, Carnival in Flanders, which is a fantastic film about, it's set like 400 years ago, and it's about an invading army coming into a town, and all the men of the town hide, and all the women of the town basically seduce the soldiers so the town doesn't get destroyed. It's hilarious. Wow. And they did a musical version on stage in uh, Broadway in about 1953 with Dolores Gray in it and Here's That Rainy Day was the breakaway song of it she got a Tony Award for the role and the whole play lasted five performances and she got a Tony Award for it singing Here's That Rainy Day and there's no surviving recording of her singing that originally musicians got hold of it jazz musicians in particular and here's that rainy day became a jazz standard both vocally and as a piece of music without lyrics for them to play around with it's amazing how it went through all of these different mutations to become a jazz standard when it started out in a very unsuccessful stage musical on broadway so i was not aware of any of that i get you on the show and i get educated well you know my work here is done man <laughs> Thank you. 
the favourite cuts for me on the album are actually the ones that I'd be interested to know whether you think they go on way too long. These are the longest jams on the album. But yeah, summertime. I'll, I'll come to that in a moment. But the opening cut on the album is a, a tune called Raunchy Rita, which basically the, the riff comes out starting out like it's going to be a 12-bar blues in the 1-4-5 form, but it subverts those expectations for the last few bars of the 12-bar stretch. Yeah. So it doesn't quite go there, but it is a blues pattern. And I love hearing how you know, the bass and the piano start playing the motif in unison. It just seems to give that tune a little bit of extra menace and yeah. sexiness, which for me in jazz is never a bad thing. Well, it's and, in the title, Raunchy Rita. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I wonder whether that was their answer to the Beatles' lovely Rita. They said, no, nah, well, screw that lovely stuff. We'll have Raunchy Rita any day. Well, or somebody's girlfriend needed to be placated. Yeah. There's, as I said, a sense of menace and a sense of eroticness, if that's... Of Erotic. Erotic, thank you. I'll, I'll go with that. Eroticism. Yeah, anything to do with that kind of stuff, I've got the words for it. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. That's why I have you on the show. And Richard Davis's bass playing, I used this expression beforehand when we're talking about the Van Morrison album, but it's really muscular. I mean, there's a lot of bass players who do that, but there's just something about his sense of style that really, really appeals to me. I think he has a sense of melodicism as yeah. well in how he approaches. I, I sort of want to go out and search out some of the other albums that he's done uh, following this. I haven't had a chance to sort of follow up. But the other tune, and you've already mentioned it by name, was their take on Gershwin's Summertime. I don't know where you stand on this, Terry, but I sort of figured I never need to hear another version of Summertime. The Summertime, I think, in the context of Porgy and Bess, sure. is, is terrific. But I think that if you're doing an 11 minute, 37 second version of it, there aren't too many tonal shifts in Summertime. It's what it is. It's a song about Summertime, Living's Easy, all that kind of stuff. Right. You don't have many changes through that. It's consistent from start to finish as a song. And if you start doing improvisations on it, I'm not sure you have anywhere valuable to take it because it's a snapshot of a time and place. It's innately that because of Porgy and Bess and, and its place in Porgy and Bess. So I think if you start improvising too much around that, you're trying to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear to a certain extent. I think that they obviously know that this tune, even by 1967, was even with thousands of cover versions yet to come, was still probably overplayed and iconic depending which side of the coin you want to go on they said right we're going to deliberately do something that's different that we're going to make our own and you don't have to think about the context into which it was born mm. i really like what they do and this is the one tune on the album that it's just the two of them the two guys whose names yeah. own the album richard davis and elvin jones it's just the two of them so you start off with davis playing his double bass bowed 
and Elvin Jones playing what sounds to me like with timpani mallets across the drum kit before going to more finger-picked and stick on drum kit. This is the tune on the album that comes to me to be the closest in spirit to John Coltrane. I would never have made that comparison if not for the fact that there's Elvin Jones there. I don't necessarily think that it does sound like a Coltrane tune or Coltrane arrangement, but in terms of everything else, which is a little bit more straight-ahead bebop, in terms of the improvisation, this comes the closest in spirit. And, you know, Elvin Jones having been long time and still to be long time associate of John Coltrane, it was inevitable that he would probably suggest something or maybe Richard Davis said, look, I'd like to try- take something in this mm-hmm. direction. So this is not, once again, just another bebop album of the era. They were going to different places and they took something that you thought you never needed to hear again and thinking, okay, well, this is a different spin. So I really like what they've done on it. And one tune on the album, though, that not necessarily that great and it is a bit of a filler but it's what separates this album from any other album that Elvin Jones played on is it's the only album that Elvin Jones ever played guitar on there's a tune on it called Elvin's Guitar Blues yeah It is pure filler, but there's no other record of Elvin Jones playing guitar. And he's such an iconic drummer. He didn't need to, but once again, they're having fun. It's interesting, too, because you say that that one's filler. The two tracks, Summertime and Raunchy Rita, take up more than half of the album. Mm. So it's like they've built the album around those two things. Yes. And putting things like Shiny Stockings and Me, Elvin's Guitar Blues and Here's That Rainy Day around those two kind of marathon tracks. Yes, so you could say with an 11-minute tune, are they just padding? Is that the filler? But Yeah, for, well, but, one way or the other, there's filler there somewhere. But this is an album that I wouldn't necessarily say is essential to someone starting up a collection. No, it's advanced. But on the other hand, it's really, really accessible. Mm. So if you're sort of thinking, well, I'm new to this whole jazz thing, or even if, you know, you're been listening to jazz all your life and you haven't heard of this one i'd still say it's accessible it's not necessarily going to challenge you in the way like ornette coleman who we spoke about before yeah. is going to do it's my well, I, I think with jazz there's the time for getting out of this you know kiddie pool and going scuba diving on a reef right and uh some of these tracks and some of the albums we've mentioned so far uh definitely get you out of your comfort zone and just see where it takes you i'm really quite happy you know that by the time this show ends we'll have spoken about some iconic stuff and some stuff you may not have heard of before so really something for everyone here so okay look i think unless you had any other points that's pretty much all i sort of wanted to say about heavy sounds the only thing i want to say is i love here's that rainy day great arrangement before you were talking about the wonderful abstract artwork on the front cover Mm. of mingus art um i don't think that the front cover of heavy sounds is particularly unusual and yet it is a wonderful cover beautiful photography and it's sort of a profile of the two men they're smoking but they're standing in the dark they're back yeah and there's something that's very noirish about it to me which is a cover that really really appeals to me i love a very jazz club very much yeah Yeah. back in the days when you could smoke in jazz clubs yeah well so even if you decide 
Yeah, no, nah, I don't particularly want to search out that album to listen to. At least go type in Heavy Sounds, Elvin Jones, Richard Davis into Google and look at the front cover because it really is a great album cover. I agree. Yeah. All right, we're going to go have one more break, play a plug for a podcast or something, and then we'll be back to talk about our final two albums of the show. Hope you've been enjoying it so far. We've been having a great conversation. I'm really enjoying yeah, it. Yeah, me too. Well, there you go. There's at least two people who's enjoying it. It's a start. <laughs> All right, we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Love That on episode 131. Morris over here, Terry over there. every month as they discuss music-related movies. iTunes, Facebook or download direct from seehere.podbeam.com The See Here Podcast. It's a blast. And we're back from break. Morris over here, Terry over there. We're talking jazz, cats and kittens. Hope you've been grooving on the show so far and all those other terrible beatnik expressions. Yeah, it's spinning fantastic black plastic. It works for us. So does it matter? Why does it matter? All right, your final album of the show, Terry. Second last album by Billie Holiday, Lady in Satin. Love is funny. I'd say. It's quiet, oh, it's mad. It's a good thing, oh, it's bad. But beautiful. Now, this one didn't get a really good uh, review when it came out because it was towards the end of her life and towards the end of her career, of course, because unlike modern people who get hologrammed, Billie Holiday's career didn't extend past her lifespan. And Lady in Satin, her vocal range was diminished by alcohol and drug abuse, unfortunately. Right. But her intonation and phrasing was perfect. The album was produced and arranged by Ray Ellis and he adjusted the orchestrations to Billie Holiday's 
limitations because of her illnesses. And again, yeah, addictions are an illness. But there's something in this album, and I, I picked it up a long time ago on vinyl. It was a vinyl re-release, and I like the cover. It's just a simple photo of her in profile, lit from almost behind, and it's a painful album in some ways because of the emotional pain you can hear. Mm. In, in what she sings but it's a magical album because it's unashamedly emotional and it's unashamedly about when she sings the songs you can tell that some of the things she's singing about are things she's experienced mm-hmm. and that almost gets sent telepathically to the listener through her voice through her phrasing through Ray Ellis's terrific orchestrations and I think it's um, one of the great unsung albums unsung in the sense of not being really famous and even though her vocal range isn't there and her voice is a little weak and reedy in, in some parts I think there's an emotional strength in this one and an emotional power that I don't know too many other albums have. Yeah, look, I fully agree with you in terms of when you hear her singing on this album you can hear the pain, you can hear that she's lived this life like when you hear songs on this like I'm a fool to want you or you don't know what love is You don't know what love is Until you've learned the meaning of the blues Until you've loved a love you've had to lose You don't know what love is She is putting every part of her emotional well-being into these songs. They're not just interpretations of a lyric on a page. She's really living amazing. it. Yeah. She's lived it. She's yeah, absolutely, it. Yeah. Um, I, I struggle a bit with the voice at this stage. I mean, this is not you know, the Billie Holiday voice of 1939 or yeah. in the mid-1940s. This is not that original. This is 59, per- yeah. Yeah, th- this is not the early version of Strange. So 58, 58, yeah. Uh, this is not like the early version of Strange Fruit. Either way, it's still Billie Holiday's voice. She always had that childlike voice. She's not like Ella Fitzgerald or Sarah Vaughan. Her voice is hugely distinctive. Yeah. And listening to this album, and this is the first time I'd actually listened to this album in preparation okay. for the show. Uh, I mean, I knew a lot of the early stuff. I'd say probably the couple of things that I know, I think I prefer hearing Lady Day in context of a smaller ensemble. So yeah. I know that she did a couple of albums for Verve. There's one I think called All or Nothing at All. All or nothing at all. Half a love never appealed to me. If your heart never could yield to me, then I'd rather have nothing at all. It includes Ben Webster on tenor sax and Barney Kessel on guitar. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like in the context of maybe like a quintet or something like that. And I just sort of felt that the low-key, like five-piece band sort of works better for my listening of her voice. 
And yet there's something about yeah. the pain and emotion that she's conveying in those songs that I mentioned where the full orchestra, it couldn't go any other way. Even though her voice is a little thin and reedy yep. and her range isn't there, she's holding her own with that orchestra, which is the thing that fascinates me. It's an album I can listen to repeatedly. It's not an album I particularly want to listen to when I'm down and I've got the blues no, myself. No. But I think when I'm in, in the right place, it's an album I'll come back to a number of times. And there are some great tracks in here, I think. Mean, you don't know what love is, as you said. Violets for your furs. You brought me violets for my furs. And it was spring for while remember. You brought me violets for it's got this thin strand of optimism. The character she's singing, and in the sense in each of these songs she's singing herself, but she's also singing the character in the song. There's that thin strand of a kind of tentative optimism, which I really like. She does I Get Along Without You Very Well, Hoagie Carmichael song. I get along without you very well. Of course I do. Except when soft rains fall and drips from leaves, then I You can't go wrong with the Hoagie Carmichael's Love Hoagie Carmichael. Skylark is one of my favourite jazz Absolutely. songs. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, best version of that, Jackie Paris. Oh, I haven't heard of him. you got to hear that one. Okay. And you've changed. I really like you've changed. The first time I heard that one, it blew me away because I really hadn't listened to too many albums that had the emotional power of this one. And you changed is, for me, a really deep one. It's easy to remember. as a little more upmarket. It's Rogers and Hart song, so it's there. But beautiful. Uh, Johnny Berger, Jimmy Van Heusen, fantastically powerful. But the extra track on the album, the one that I like, and I, I've heard a number of different versions of it. I know that uh, Johnny Hartman does a fantastic, did a fantastic version of is the end of a love affair. So I walk a little too fast And I drive a little too fast And I'm reckless, it's true But what else can you do? I think that one is lived experience by anybody who sings it. Everybody's had the love affair end in some way or another. And I think that's the perfect song about that. And her version of it, that's a nice contrast. I may well play back-to-back Johnny Hartman's version of it and her version because the way those two singers sing it, One's a man's experience of ending a love affair, uh-huh. and hers is a, a, clearly a woman's experience of ending a love affair. But there's a commonality there that, that really, for me, has a, an emotional power that I don't know too many other tracks have. I guess the emotional resonance with this album is, I think, would have been maybe a year later she was no longer with us. Yeah. it's uh, Her last album I haven't heard. I really should pick that up. But for me, this is an album that wouldn't be made now. People wouldn't put out an, an emotionally raw album like this. There'd be too many people controlling the narrative and social media and how do you promote an album like this and all that kind of stuff. It's something that came at a time before there was 
that level of control over image. And it's unashamedly about a woman who is dying and by a woman who's dying. And in that sense, it's a powerful artistic artifact. There's a book which a really close friend of mine went and gave me for my birthday last year called Billy Holiday, The Lost Interview. And despite its name, it actually has a lot of interviews that she did over the 50s, some like for radio and a lot of it's you know, pleasantries and stuff. But one thing that I thought was really tragic, it was more like, her thoughts rather than an interview as such but she was in hospital and under police watch because I think she'd been arrested again for heroin possession and she wrote about the irony of being this weak defenseless woman still having to be under guard by the police in a hospital in 1959 when she was clearly not at the peak of her health. I mean, I don't think she says in the chapter that she knows that she's not long for the earth, but the music conveys a lot more of the tragedy that was her life. But just reading this chapter, her own words, I found really incredibly sad. I've got to ask you one other thing. I've never seen it, but have you watched the Diana Ross biopic, Lady Sings the Blues? I don't think it works. For a start, Diana Ross is such a skinny little thing. Hmm. Even though Billie Holiday lost weight at the end of the thing, she wasn't a a waif-like person at all. And I think there are any number of female actors that can play Billie Holiday now. There's just such a strength in black American particularly acting at the moment that you could get a biopic together that will work. But in a sense, it's I don't think it's necessary. I think this album says everything you'd want out of a biopic. Um, and it really is a rare gem of a jazz album for that reason. It's raw in a way that jazz normally isn't. A great pick. Like you, I don't think it's an album that I could come back to a lot and maybe partly just because I'd be thinking about the circumstances under which it was recorded, but also the voice is troubled. The voice. Yeah, but I think it's a recommended album if you like Billie Holiday and you like jazz singers. Oh, for sure. I think it's definitely one that you should listen to to just get an idea of what's possible in that medium. I mean, that's the thing. Her voice doesn't sound frail, but it does sound lived in, but really very lived in. It sounds tired without being boring. Yes, very much. So that's Lady in Satin, Billie Holiday. And I don't know whether I'd say the front cover is iconic, but I'd certainly seen that album cover for many, many years before I actually sort of got rental. I think it's a beautiful picture of it. It is. It's it's classic. It's great. It is very much. I'm surprised, Terry, you're very much a jazz vocalist sort of yeah. person and only one of your three albums was uh, featuring a jazz vocalist. So Yeah, well, I'm spacing them out, mate. <laughs> very good. Well, okay, so we'll now finish off with my pick and this is the only album in that we'd be talking about tonight that was recorded in the 21st century. This is from 2010 and also the only album in our picks from an Australian artist. The name of the, the uh, pianist is Joe Kindamo and the album is called Another Place, Some Other Time. Joe Kendamo and what this album is. Joe Kendamo is a local jazz pianist who I first saw in the early 80s playing at the Corner Hotel in Richmond with a jazz fusion band 
called loose change, right? So they were called changes before that, but for most of their yep. lifetime, they were called loose change. And it featured Kendamo on piano, Virgil Donati on drums, who's an absolute powerhouse, mm. Mark Domini on guitar, and Roger McLaughlin on the bass, who you wouldn't expect because his background was more Little River Band and stars, so the country rock thing, but yeah. he proved himself to be a really, really great jazz bassist. But he's done a ton of things. He's worked with so many artists in the local jazz scene and worked overseas as well. He's done his interpretations of other composers as well as doing his own stuff. And he could play anywhere, anytime. But I saw him maybe about six to eight months ago playing at a beautiful venue just off Sydney Road called Jazz Lab. And, you know, went up to him just yeah. to tell him I was a fan and I've been a fan since the Changes days. And he thought, oh, wow, someone who remembers that. But... According to what I've read, he's never actually received any formal tuition in jazz in his life. He started out as an accordion player playing in... And then he got better. Yes. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, look, you know what, I, I remember I used to go see weddings, parties, anything, and they had their um, accordion player had a sticker on the accordion that said, play the accordion, go to prison, that's the penalty. <laughs> so, so it's nice to know that the accordion players have a sense of humor about themselves but yeah he still does and there's some evidence of the accordion on this album but it's mainly about his piano playing so to focus on the album itself this is his interpretation of music from the films of the Coen brothers and I was sort of really pleased with myself when I thought oh this is an album I'd like to talk to and all the better for having you on the show to talk about this so my first question to you is are you a fan of the music of Carter Burwell who's for the most part the in-house composer for the Coen brothers films? Not noticeably I've heard his stuff and I see him on a lot of soundtracks mm. but I like the music of Coen brothers moves I think the lovely thing about them is they're always integral they don't draw attention to themselves but they lift the material and I think that that's an art in itself particularly in the past there have been smarty pants kind of composers you know like your Max Steiners and Eric Wolfgang Korngold and they draw attention to what they're doing but Carter Burwell stuff is he's a team player he knows the mood that they need for a particular scene he, he works well with the Coen brothers and the, the, it's very hard to pick the music away from the film in some ways I mean, obviously, Joe Kendama has done that. Mm. But for the most part, the music is so integral to the movies. It's, it's very hard to take it out of context and enjoy it. But I think that this album, which I have listened to, does that really interestingly. I like the fact that the tunes on this album, and, and I should say that it's not all Carter Burwell compositions because mm. the Coen Brothers' music is such an integral part to their movies, both in the sense of there are films like Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? and Inside yeah. Llewellyn Davis, where the story revolves around music or music musicians yeah and there's other films like you know whatever fargo or raising arizona where the music aids the story i mean we often hear about new york city being a character in the mm. films of woody allen for instance but i often think that carter burwell's music and i actually do find it can work outside of context or the music that they choose to use where they've rearranged it for the yeah. film so, so for instance like uh, everyone knows it in the big lebowski they take the gypsy king's version of Hotel California and place it in context yeah. in that film. And I can't hear that song anymore without thinking of that film. And on this album, and Kendamo says in the liner notes that he's a huge film buff and he's been a long time fan of 
the Coen brothers and just really one night watching a DVD at home with his wife, he just sort of hit upon the idea, hey, this music is great. Maybe I ought to see what I can do with it. I think that this album shows the strength of the music in the films, or at least Kendamo's approach to this music, because like the Coen brothers films, you get those films which are deep and dark and they're often about a character who at the start of the film, his life is shit and then it just goes even further down towards hell. So mm. like the William H. Macy character in Fargo, yeah. you just know it's not going to end well for him. Yeah, and then you get stuff like Hail Caesar, which goes in a different direction. And completely. Unlike a lot of the uh, talking heads in the film groups on Facebook, I am a huge fan of Hail Caesar. I love that film. I, do, I love it. The more you know about 50s cinema in Hollywood, the funnier and the better Hail Caesar is. Look, you know what? I won't pretend for a minute that I know a ton about 50s cinema, but I found enough in there that I thought it worked well on its own. And what I could pick up, I did and really, really enjoyed it. I love the noir elements, but I think there's a lot of people who've sort of gone and dismissed the Coen Brothers comedies as, oh yeah, that's frivolous. When are they going to make their next real film? There's nothing wrong with frivolous. I I don't even find them frivolous. I'm not saying every film of theirs worked for me. I thought like A Serious Man was not a favourite necessarily, but Hail Caesar was something that I really, truly did love. On this album, there's the Carter Burwell stuff, and then there's Kendamo's approach to reinterpreting some of the traditional Americana. For instance, the most obvious picks would be A Brother Where Art Thou, the two tunes that they choose to do on this album, uh, Man of Constant Sorrow and You Are My Sunshine. The interpretation of Man of Constant Sorrow is so much fun. out sounding like he's going down a country road and then it just swings like crazy. Pivots, yeah. That's the thing. I mean, like, I've often gone and said that jazz music and country music need not necessarily be at war with each other and you've got western swing which yeah. purely advocates for that. I mean, I've never sort of decided whether that's country music played by jazz musicians or jazz music played by country musicians. For people who say, oh, I like one but not the other, well, guess what? Real musicians love both yeah, you can like more than one thing at yeah, once yeah that the Kendamo version he really knows how to make it swing and he brings the fun with that tune and on the other hand though when he goes to you are my sunshine even though they're not using any vocals on this album the way how he plays that tune how he approaches really is more in line with the original lyric <laughs> Thank you. 
because you are my sunshine. It's a yeah. sad song when you think of it. It is. And this is as melancholy as all get going. I just love Kendama's approach. Yeah. He also does one of my favorite Hank Mancini tracks, yes. Lujon. Dying to use on a YouTube video because I've got a whole bunch of things I could do perfectly with it, but I'd be breaking copyright and I'd lose monetization from it. Ooh. Yeah, but I love Lujon. I think it works in about five different contexts as a track, and I think it's a very underestimated. Everyone does Pink Panther when sure. you think Henry Mancini, but I've got a lot of fondness for Lujon. Beautiful. It's gorgeous what he does with it. I think the other hero of the album for me, uh, well, there are a couple of heroes. I mean, all the musicianship is great, but Nigel McLean, who's the uh, violinist on this album, who actually is supposed, at least according to Joe, is one of Australia's leading violinists in the bluegrass field which right. sort of means that he lends some authority to the O Brother tunes, but everywhere he plays, he's not playing as a bluegrass play, he's interpreting it in the realm that Joe is working with. And you've also got Doug DeVries, who I've been a long-time fan of his guitar work. I remember seeing him play with Vince Jones back in the early 80s. That's where I've heard him before. Yeah, oh, he's On the brink of it, yeah. Yes, yes, he's on that album, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, another guy who I'm sure you're familiar with from uh, the ABC is uh, Lucky Oceans, doing a uh, pedal steel, and it's his play that really owns You Are My Sunshine. Um, I mean, you had me with this one because it's a concept album. And I love concept albums. My favourite one, which is the ultimate cool concept album, just to diverge a little bit, Dean Martin did a whole album of lullabies. And Frank Sinatra and the wee small hours. I mean, that's yeah. arguably a concept But album. doing a whole album of songs that are meant to put people to sleep <laughs> shows a, a crazy audacity. I actually won that on a radio quiz. Oh, wow. <laughs> CD. Oh, that's, the, that's not fair. They didn't know who they were dealing with. I know, but, you know, you get a Dean Martin album, you don't expect lullabies. And yeah, I love my lullabies. I just love concept albums and I like the diversity of them. And doing the Coen Brothers is a genius move. This got released 2010 on the Jazz Head label, which is owned by Joe Camilleri of okay, yeah. Black Sorrows and Joe Jazz and the Falcons fame. He basically decided he wanted to support local jazz musicians. So, full credit to you, Joe Camilleri, for doing that. Uh, a lot of great albums on that label, but I think uh, Kendamo's got another couple. There's uh, an album that he did, actually, this might have been on a different label, but he's also done his jazz interpretations of the music of Paul Simon, both in the Simon and Garfunkel context and in the Simon solo context. Alright, well, just to basically finish off there, once again, Another Place, Some Other Time by Joe Kindamo. I don't know that it's on a streaming service, but I think if you go to Jazzhead Records or joekindamo.com.au you can probably still purchase a copy, and you'll have heard a little bit of the music played underneath. You should probably spell his surname. Oh, sorry, yes, uh, Kindamo is spelled C-H, it's not Chindamo, it's it's pronounced Kindamo, C-H-I-N-D-A-M-O. If you live in Melbourne, then check out Jazz Lab. He's bound to be playing there at some stage. I think that maybe he's as much jazz royalty, I think, in this town as someone like Bob Sedegreen. He's Mm. a wonderful composer, contributed much to jazz in this city, and presumably plays the other major cities around the country, and search him out if you can. I think that there's some stuff there on Spotify if that's your means of listening, but not this album. So you might have to go out and search a CD from his site, but this album is so marvellous. And certainly, if you like the music from the Coen Brothers films, 
and you just want to hear someone give it a different spin, then this album is really for you. Just wonderful album. Yeah. Another place, some other time. Jack and Damo, the music from the film of the Coen Brothers. puts our discussion of great jazz albums at an end for uh, this episode. I wouldn't put it past us to do another one somewhere down the track. It can happen. It will happen. I'm looking it will happen, it. yeah. So, Terry, for the one or two people out there who don't know who you are, and you know, yeah. really, why not? But yeah, apart from myself, yeah. Exactly. Please tell people about your wonderful podcast and YouTube channel and where they can find them. Yeah, I've got two podcasts because, who knows, Paleo Cinema podcast, which you can find at paleocinema.podbean.com and the Martian Drive-In podcast, which is at martiandriveinpodbean.com. One's about movies that are more than 20 years old. The other one's about genre films, sometimes new, sometimes old. But I usually try to make sure they're interesting films, and I'm never going to do a Star Wars movie again. Uh, Wednesday nights at about 9 or 10 p.m. Melbourne time, which is uh, varies depending on daylight saving. You can hear me on if you stream ABC Radio in Darwin or Alice Springs or any of the Northern Territory areas where I talk about movies for half an hour, usually with Rebecca McLaren, but sometimes with a few other people, Emma Sleeth and whoever else is replacing her. And we usually just shoot the breeze about that and have a great time with it. I've also got the YouTube channel, which is Terry Talks Movies. And this week I'm doing a piece on why Groundhog Day is a nightmare and uh, some really scary implications on that. Next week I'll be doing one of my marathon stunts where I watch 12 movies in 24 hours and try to review them for the camera. Now, you did that last year. I did that last year, I'm and there were diminishing returns, but I, I'm doing it again. And I'm, this time I'm doing movies I haven't seen before. But I'm doing that on Saturday from 8 a.m. until 8 a.m. on Sunday. It's it's kind of like marathon running for movie watchers. certainly is. That's incredible stamina. I mean, do you find that you're going out for a jog? Like you think maybe after three films, is all right. I'm going to go for or, or walk around to the park. No, I've got some weights, so I may do a little bit of weights mm-hmm. and a few squats and a lot of espresso. Yes, well, that is your passion. With that tighter time schedule, you've got approximately two hours per movie, and I made sure I haven't done any really long movies. So I'm not going to be watching The Irishman or or something like that. Make the movies short so they fit within the two hours, gives you time for toilet breaks and snacks and just stretching out and saying hi to the family. But uh, it's something I invented, but I don't recommend that everybody do it because it'll do your head in for about a week. So what's the approach going to be to recording the discussion about the films? You're going to watch a film and then, while it's fresh in your mind, talk about it and then go to Yeah, the I've one. got a couple of different cameras I use. I've got a little Osmo Pocket, which is 4K handheld thing about the size of a Pez dispenser. I've also got um, a couple of other cameras I'll have set up there. I'm still working on that part of it, cinematography of it, but I'm going to be doing it and I'll be doing a bit to camera. Uh, increasingly, I may become incoherent, but that's part of the narrative. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just do it and have fun and then edit it later in the week. 
Terrific. Well, what I'm going to do is in the show notes for this, I will put links. Thank you. Up to uh, all those endeavors. Well, I'll make mention of the ABC. People have to find that on the app themselves, but yep. otherwise the YouTube You've got channel, to help the national broadcaster. We do, because yep. certainly our government won't. Absolutely. Oh, hang on. Wait, what? Oh. You've heard all the details as well earlier on in the show from Joanne as to where the other places where you can find this podcast and how you can join the Facebook group, etc., etc. We're always looking for more people to come in and listen. And I just wanted to say once again, a huge thanks to uh, Peter and Christian over at Pantheon Podcast for taking Love That Album on a few months ago. Really extremely grateful. And I mean, a lot of great company. I mean, I haven't sort of gone through, I've got to admit, there are about 30 different podcasts that they host. So uh, truth be known, I haven't gone through every single one of them, but I have gone through a few and there's some amazing stuff there. Rock and Roll Archaeology is, I think, the main flagship podcast for the network hosted by Christian Swain. And this is a guy who really, really knows his stuff. There's an episode that I listened to of a show called Let It Roll. Now, Let It Roll tends to interview authors of music books and the episode i was just listening to today and i had a good discussion with my son max about this later on i'm not going to sort of go into details to where it went because that would take forever that'd be a show unto itself but they had an interview with a fellow who wrote a book called retromania which came out i think about 10 years ago and this guy's contention was, as a lot of music scribes do, is talk about why rock and roll is dead and how nothing new has come along in the rock field for many years. And I was listening to that and I wanted to shout at my phone where I was listening <laughs> to the podcast. But they, then they also went through to jazz and he also made sort of the contention that there was nothing new in the jazz field from 1980. It was all a bit of a museum piece and a lot of musicians were doing what's come before then. So there's a bunch of questions that you could ask. Why is that a problem? Or have you really been listening to anything? You know, I mean, I mentioned Medeski, Martin and Wood earlier on, and that's hugely different from anything that's come before. And there's bound to be a lot of other jazz musicians out there who are doing wildly different things. But I still found it to be a fascinating discussion, regardless of whether I agreed with everything, but it was a rigorous debate, and I, I just love listening to that. So uh, Let It Roll is another great show. Highway Hi-Fi, which is now part of Pantheon. They're also new to Pantheon as well, which is a show I've been championing, and Tim Merrill, we've both been championing at this for months. These two guys, they do great research, and they know and love their music, and every show they talk about something different in the history of recorded music. So they did a whole show talking about that fad i think in the 70s where you played music for your plants to grow by they did a show on zambian rock they did a show which you would appreciate terry on the yeah yeah scene of, oh, i love the yeah yeah uh, of the 90s so well i'll send you a link to that it's a oh, great cool. show so uh highway hi-fi rock and roll librarian is a show that i've listened to christian swain's involved with that as well but a woman called shelly sorensen who is talking about books biographies on musicians books that she's read about so rather than speaking to the writer but she's giving her take on the books that she's read in the music world and just all great shows probably the final one that i want to mention that i've listened to is the rocks back pages podcast featuring a man who i had very early on in the life of love that album the biography writer barney hoskins uh, he came onto the show to talk about his biography of tom waits and rocks back pages is a really really great website it's focused on reprinting articles from the beginning of rock journalism's early days you know from late 1960s through and 
I don't know where they get all these articles, but it's absolutely amazing resource. Highly recommend you dig into it. There's some free articles. There's some articles you've got to pay for if you want to go really dig into it deep. But give a listen to their podcast where they talk about some of the articles that they've just recently put up. And just fascinating show. There's a lot more that I have to dig through. But if you want to find out anything from Pantheon, just go to rockandrollarchaeology.com and you can link to any of the uh, individual shows. And see if you type in uh, Pantheon into your podcast app of choice then you get the whole stream of everything that's in their roster or you can get individual shows if you only want to listen to one or two shows rather than everything else i just find it really exciting to have been taken on by a network that all their focus is music podcast rather long ramble but i'm truly (laughs) happy to be part of that so uh thanks james and um i recommend that you go out and check them out once again terry thank you so much for being a part of this and, My uh, pleasure, mate. When you're ambulatory again, we'll have coffee. We'll, we will be doing that. Yes, I've got, yes. I've got to learn how to walk on both feet again. But um, Yeah, well, you know, you learned it once when you were a child. You can do it again. I don't know. Don't they say that you learn a lot more when you're three years old than when you're 55 years old? Yeah, we're talking about walking here, not walking a tightrope. All oh, right, okay, done. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, with that, I just want to say um, pretty much the same. I've been finishing off my shows in a similar way to how you do. I'm always saying, mm. people, listen to some great albums, listen to some... Well, I'll try not to listen to too many bad albums, but listen to some music, watch some great films, or some ordinary films. Be nice to each other, because in this world where there's a lot of people baiting each other on the internet, we don't need any more of that. Just give someone you love a hug and introduce them to a great album that you love and you've got something to discuss. And best of all, introduce them to our podcast. Do that if you do nothing else. All right, with that said, all the best. And uh, we look forward to um, speaking to you next month on Love That Album. All the best. Cheers. This is Brad Page from the I'm in Love With That Song podcast, inviting you to join me as we explore a different song each episode, discovering what makes these songs great. The performances, arrangements, and the production tricks and techniques are all part of creating those magic moments that turn a good song into a great one. On this podcast, we take a deep dive into each song, listening to all those nuances that came together to make it a great song. Our journey takes us across the musical map, 
from the Beatles and the Stones to Aretha Franklin and Tom Petty, Kiss, The Cars, Todd Rundgren and Roxy Music, from Badfinger to Al Green, Stevie Wonder to David Bowie, from Aerosmith to The Zombies. We listen to it all on the I'm in Love with That Song podcast. You may be unfamiliar with some of these songs, and some of them you've probably heard a hundred times, but I bet if we listen closely, we can discover something new. So, join me on the I'm in Love with That Song podcast, and let's listen together, because I think you're going to love these songs too. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 